Welcome to Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. This is episode 150, 150 regular episodes. I'm your co-host, Russ. And I'm your co-host, Mike, and we made it. Wow, 150 on our way to 200. <laughs> Plus there's seven interview episodes. If you haven't heard those, you can go back. I think those are well worth seeking out. Maybe we'll get another interview in this spring as well. I had a couple ideas in mind, people that would be interesting to talk to. But until then, we'll be on a regular format, bringing you six new recordings every week, three classical and three jazz. From last week's episode, I want to give thanks to Yepes Zako and Charles Chen, two artists we talk about in the jazz category. Thank them for sharing the episode with their fans. Two albums we really liked. Yeah, those were both really, really good. The both of those, yeah. A lot of new jazz sounding really good. I'm really liking what we're hearing. Yeah, there's a yeah. lot of really good stuff coming out. And I found a whole bunch of releases this week and last week. It took me two days to get mm. through all of them because the lists yeah. were, you know, still growing longer. So I guess coming up for spring, there's going to be a, a lot of releases. Yeah. And we talk about them on the episode here every week, where in the description you can find links to Spotify and also Apple Music for all the music that we'll discuss. At the top of the description, there's also a link to the full episode playlist can get all the music in one place on Deezer. That's CD-quality streaming music from France. You can listen to the podcast there, too, on Deezer if you want to get everything in one place. If you can't see the full description or the recording list or the links are hard to activate on whatever app you listen to us on, you can always come over to our host site. That's Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Everything's easy to follow there for this and all previous episodes. If you enjoy the podcast, please follow or subscribe wherever you prefer listening to us and tell a music-loving friend. Helps us grow our audience, and the audience is growing, Mike. Yeah, I noticed. That was uh, pretty surprising. I was going to comment on that, in fact. Yeah. We had a lot of downloads this week, more than we've been getting. We've had good first weeks for our episodes, so welcome to any new listeners that have jumped on in the past month or so. Yeah. If you're a listener out there who's just started listening, please take a moment, give us a ranking, or write a short review. That helps us get listed in the recommendations and the music categories. All that stuff's done by algorithms. You know, sometimes we pop in, and then I'll look again, and some other K-pop podcast has uh, taken our place. Right. So it's nice to stay in there. It helps us get new listeners that way. You can also come over and follow us on Facebook. We've got a page there, and you can see some extra releases that I put up as they come out. I don't know if they'll make it in an episode or not, but if you're looking for something new to listen to, get a few extras during the week. You can see our interaction with the artists. Leave a message or comment there as well. And if you'd like to contact us directly with any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. We want to also mention our friends over at the same difference, two jazz fans, one jazz standard podcast. That's AJ and Johnny. They have an episode that comes out every other week looking at several versions of the same jazz standard. And they play little snippets from each version, discuss the history of the original, and then they talk about what they like or don't like. You never know what they're going to come up with yeah. for their episodes. Right. And you usually learn a lot and also laugh a lot when you listen to those guys. There's a link to their podcast in the description. And also, if you stick around to the end of this episode, you can hear their little promo at the end. And we've been guests on each other's podcasts once last year. The, our guest slot on their podcast came out January 1st, and that was a lot of fun. And hopefully, we're going to uh, repeat that this year. Apparently, that'll happen. They're pretty gung-ho, so yeah. we'll see. Uh, that was a lot of fun. 
you know, we come across a lot of jazz standards in our podcast too. So, you know, we do have that kind of common ground and I can always come up with a couple of recordings that are almost all standards that, you know, we can get those guys over on. So I hope we can do that again. Maybe this summer we'll do it again. Yeah, talking to AJ and Johnny is a lot nicer than uh, being in a party and talking and then everybody walks away from us and pretends we're not there, which is <laughs> what usually what, happens. That's what happens when uh, <laughs> you talk about adult music. Yeah. Right. Anyway, we're happy that uh, you listen to us and, and we know there's people who like this music out there around the world. I kind of can't wait till this uh, particular podcast ends so that we can go and listen to next week's <laughs> music. Listening to next that's week's kind of what music. I'm thinking usually. I'm like, oh, we got to do this podcast now. I want to go listen to it. Yeah, we've got next, next week's, week's all sorted out too. So we'll tell you about what that's going to be when we get to the end of this show. But let's get into what we're supposed to talk about this week. And before we do, we're going to be uh, playing samples as usual. So here's our fair use disclaimer. Music sample clips are for commentary and educational purposes. We recommend that listeners listen to the complete recordings, all of which are available on streaming services in the links provided. We also suggest that if you enjoy the music, you consider purchasing the CDs or high-quality downloads to support the artists. All right, and let's just jump into the uh, classical music here. Now, I've kind of ordered these in a really strange fashion this week, <laughs> starting with the 19th century, which is very unusual for the classical yeah. music. We usually like to go for the Baroque or the earlier music first, but I'll explain why I did this later, because I, I like to have contemporary composers last. Right. <laughs> and we have one with some contemporary composers on, even though they're they're not really the main attraction on this record. Anyway, we'll get to that when we do. But first, we have uh, music by a French composer that uh, neither of us really knew much about, Edouard Lalot. Mm. His symphony in G minor and other orchestra works, mostly his uh, suites from his ballet, Namuna, uh, which I'm sure neither <laughs> of us have ever heard of because I hadn't. Right. This was played by the Estonian National Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Nema Yervi. Now... Notice I did not say Pavel Yervi, who is the current, like, kind of yeah, famous very active conductor. conductor. This is his father, Nema Yervi, whose recordings I remember from the 1990s and even 2000s. And he introduced me to a lot of new composers I'd never heard of, like Edward Tubin. I, I think I still have that uh, Complete mm. Symphonies uh, album released by Beast long, long ago. Might have been late 90s. I don't remember when it was released. Nema Yervi introduced a lot of new music to me. He didn't really always go for the big-name composers. He would kind of go through the byways of the uh, right. what, what was left behind in the classical music. And he's now 86 years old. Wow. And I checked the date on this because I was looking at... This is on the Chandos label, I should mention. And I was looking at the uh, artwork on the label. It's a pencil drawing, and it has right. kind of like a, a yellowed kind of look to it. So I was mm. thinking, oh, is this a really old album? They're making this look retro, you know, for the uh, right. cover. So I was afraid it might have been like a really old recording that they just, you know, right. decided to take out of the vault. But no, this was recorded in June 2022 when Nema Yervi, I'm going to say his full name just so we don't get him confused with Pavel. He's the patriarch of a very musical family. There, mm. there are other Yervis who are out there in the classical music world as well, or in the musical world in general. He had just turned 85 when he made these recordings. Amazing. And there's real fire in these too. Uh, Maybe too much fire, but that's going to depend on you. I rather liked them. Anyway, we'll talk about that. Now, I mentioned um, the ballet Namuna. I'm going to have to um, give you a little bit of a plot um, description for that so we know kind of what this is about. Anyway, the cover art is probably, I think, a scene from the ballet Namuna. Um, Namuna is a uh, slave girl in the ballet. I guess that's why we don't see this ballet performed too Could often be. these days. It's not a very popular topic anymore. Anyway, she's a slave girl. And that might be uh, Ottavio, the guy on the right, who uh, buys her and sets her free. 
He's a good guy, Otavio. Anyway, we'll get to him in a moment. The first track we hear on this album, track one, is called Overture to Le Roi d'Is. Is is, for those of you who know your Breton folklore, is the city that uh, submerged into the sea when, um, I guess, it had lost its morality or something. If you know Debussy's uh, piece, uh, La Cathedrale Angloutie, the submerged cathedral, it's a piano piece. It depicts the uh, cathedral rising from the sea for the pious to see before it sinks back in. Hmm. This is that story. Okay. okay. Le Roi Dix. Okay. It's an opera in three acts, five tableaus. I'd love to hear the opera if anyone wants to put that out. There are labels out there who are recording all these obscure operas now, like the Bruzane label, and I've kind of got a lot of uh, operatic information from them. The overture was played in 1876 originally, but the opera was not staged until 1888. That's 12 years later. Wow. That gives me a lot of hope for my novel, by the way, which was published in <laughs> 2013 and still hasn't made me any money. So <laughs> Amazon.com, please read Extreme Music by Michael Vezzuto. It's a great book. So anyway, by 1888, Lalo had reworked the overture into a fiercely dramatic and expressive piece in which many of the opera's themes are heard. And I'm guessing that we're hearing the reworked version here, though the booklet notes aren't clear on this point. Because it sounds to me like there are a lot of unconnected themes that we're going to hear later in the right. opera, but we don't know what they are yet. Anyway, it starts with ominous strings, very warm sounding from the uh, orchestra, the uh, Estonian National Symphony Orchestra here. This is a very old school sound that they're getting. It sounds like it's a large orchestra for a piece that really needs like a sort of medium kind of sized orchestra, maybe a... Mm. It could be leaner, too. But I think Yervi's very old school. I'm sorry, name of Yervi. He's very old school in his um, wanting that massive sound to come out of the orchestra, and he certainly gets that here. There's an immediate oboe melody that answers the strings. It's nicely orchestrated. Yervi's pacing is relaxed enough to let the opening flow over the audience, so it's a really nice feeling that he gets here. Even at the 2 minute and 27 second mark where tension and dynamics suddenly build up, the tempo is restrained. There's some cool brass fanfares and very present-sounding percussion in the mix. If you have a uh, subwoofer, you'll enjoy this. The sudden quiet at 3 minutes 15 seconds is impressive, too. It leaves little crescendoing waves of sound for the next flowing romantic theme, which is fairly big-boned in the strings. And I guess I'm going to sample that because I want to kind of give an idea of what this orchestra is going to sound like here. So let's hear from about the 5 minute and 40 second mark into this overture. surprise there huh we thought yeah. <laughs> we thought it was gonna quiet down but it didn't yeah notice the pacing really you know comfortable there's tension building this is a, a master at work here Nemi at you know conducting this orchestra the textures and themes change fast intermingling different elements from the opera at the seven minute mark there's a lovely cello melody answered by the basses after this section there's a build-up in the woodwinds to a grand string statement with brass providing a counter theme and pinning down the harmony the full ensemble is well captured on the recording and makes a stage filling and really room filling on the stereo sound. The movement ends excitingly. 
All right, the movement ends excitingly. I could say that about almost every track on this album. <laughs> Lalo really likes the the big rumbling mm. percussion, you know, loud brass endings. And we're going to hear that even in the individual movements of the suites. The second track, Vals de la Cigarette from Namuna. This is the first piece of music we're going to hear from the uh, ballet Namuna, which was uh, composed 1868 to 1871. This is from the unpublished third suite. So Lalo made two suites to be performed by orchestra of this ballet. And the third suite, he was writing a third suite, but he, I guess he, I don't know if he finished it, but it wasn't published anyway. This uh, Vals de la Cigarette is a waltz from the first act in the ballet, Ottavio, the good guy, I'll explain when we get to the next, the, the first suite. Um, Ottavio, who's a good guy, he makes Namuna roll her own cigarette so that she finishes the dance while smoking. That's really not nice of him, is it? He's supposed to be the <laughs> hero here. I don't know. The director worried about fire, and the dancer playing Ottavio claimed it was his idea, not the choreographer's. In the end, Namuna rolled the cigarette but did not smoke it. Hmm. hmm. What was the point of that? It probably would have been cool if she was, like, dancing and smoking a cigarette. You'd see the smoke wafting around. I guess it would be a nice uh, visual image, but didn't happen. Anyway, musically, two pounding chords underlined by timpani punctuate the opening. The waltz that follows is pleasant and has a bit of an exotic feel to it in the melodic material. There's a middle section that stops waltzing but maintains the 3-4 rhythm. These two sections continue to follow each other, and there's a grand finale at the end. Tracks three through seven. Suite number one from the ballet Namuna. This is going to be the majority of this album, by the way, is this um, music from this ballet. It's in two acts and three tableaux, or scenes. Namuna, the ballet, takes place on the island of Corfu in the 17th century. That's another cool thing about these um, ballets and operas. They always take place in these places we all want to go. You know? <laughs> so you can kind of imagine that you're there. Okay, so the Italian, Adriani has lost everything at the card tables to Ottavio, who is the hero, the male hero of the ballet, including his boat and his slave girl, Namuna. So he lost Namuna to Ottavio in a card game. Namuna falls in love with Ottavio, who sets her free, and they frustrate the various attempts of Adriani and his henchmen to get their revenge. Adriani kind of sounds like... um. <laughs> He sounds like Dick Dastardly. Remember that character in <laughs> Wacky Races? <Yeah>. Right. <laughs> the Hanna-Barbera cartoon. Anyway, that sounds like that's the way this ballet goes. Anyway, but Lalo doesn't seem to care much for Adriani uh, since uh, any music that characterizes him is absent from these two suites. Uh, they focus on Ottavio and Namuna. The lovers escape from the island in a boat. Nice. Very romantic. Track three. This is the first movement of the suite, a prelude. It starts mysteriously with winds and shimmering tremolo accompaniment. There's a woodwind melody that's noble and royal sounding. And after this, a sunny, dewy morning type melody starts. Morning meaning the morning of the uh, day. <laughs> this right. builds to a big crescendo with brass blaring out the theme and the percussion rumbling. Though the style is romantic, the orchestration, as it so often is with French composers, is interesting and draws one to focus on it. There's a string theme at 3 minutes and 15 seconds. Yevi makes the string theme register with power, especially at the end with the rumbling timpani and blaring brass accompanying. This is a big ending for so early in the suite. I was kind of surprised by this. Track 4, movement 2, Serenade. Act 1, number 3, we hear this music. It's a balcony scene in the ballet. Ottavio has hired some musicians, 
to serenade the lovely Helena. I don't know who she is. She wasn't mentioned in the summary. Anyway, string pizzicati with light harp played rhythmically create an interesting feeling to this fleet-footed section, and uh, it's pretty hypnotic, the theme and move and the movement in general, and I think we should probably hear this. Let's give it a listen. has a nice sense of movement to it yeah track five movement three femme varier otavio and namuna dance slowly around four groups of women carrying large bunches of flowers thickly layered strings start this off winds lighten the texture and take it to the sweet main string theme highly romantic almost syrupy but avoiding that by the shape of the melody lalo seems to like fanfares because in the second minute there's another one albeit distantly heard here the movement has a big finale, powerfully realized here. Yeah, Lalo likes these, these big endings. Track six, movement 4A. So this is sort of in two parts. Parade de Foire. This is part of the finale of Act 1, as is the next track, which would be 4B. It shows a bustling scene of dancers and musicians while Otavio pays ardent court to Helena with Namuna watching. It has an aggressive brass and string opening, then a dotted rhythm played at high speed, providing the dance rhythm. What's catching my attention is the energy Yervi is putting into and getting out of the orchestra, and you heard that in the previous sample that I played as well. Remember, he was 85 at the time of the recording. Tension doesn't slacken at all. In fact, it tightens, and at 1 minute and 44 seconds, the theme suddenly changes to something softer and more seductive. An exotic flute sequence is heard at 3 minutes and 40 seconds. By the way, when I say exotic, I mean curvy and modal, of course. <laughs> the flute theme brings this movement to a quickly taken ending. And then we reach the final uh, movement of the Suite 4B. This is track 7, Fête Foraine. It's another interesting rhythm created by the strings, which hand off seamlessly to the winds for the thematic material. And we should sample this, too. There's a lot of interesting music in this suite. Here we go. start getting dramatic there you usually don't hear woodwinds driving the rhythm much mm -hmm. in an orchestral work but here you do yeah beautifully put across by yervi and the orchestra there are fortissimi that really thunder out of the speakers in this section and i have to say that lalo is a man of his time and place as he like so many french opera composers of the 19th century like offenbach for example likes the timpani triangle combination for accents we hear a lot of triangle <laughs> on this album, really in these suites, but not as much as in Offenbach, though. This is another riotous movement with powerful fortissimi driving the rhythm into our ears. You didn't hear that part at the beginning. It builds up later. The third big ending of the suite is heard at the end, 
And this is the final one. It had to be a big ending. But wait, there's more. Suite number two from Namuna is, you know, comprises uh, tracks eight through 12. The first movement, track eight, Dance Marocaine. This is a Mor you know, Moroccan dance. Uh, the melodies were noted by Lalo in a cafe of Moroccan musicians at the Paris Exposition Universelle. I should have said the whole thing in French. Paris Exposition Universelle of 1878. Male dancers dance for the noisy music, while four female dancers share the gentler moments. This comes out crashing on the timpani and brass. The bass drum registers strongly on the recording. The entire performance is very present sound-wise. A sudden change to a quieter dynamic has slippery melodies sounding at a minute and 30 seconds. We speed up back to the opening louder material. And yeah, you know, let me just sample this. This is going to be loud. Here we go. That's the way it's going to go. Oh, <laughs> he loves those fortissimi. Track nine, Mazurka. It's a Polish dance. It's a solo for the guest ballerina, Julia Subra. It has an oriental flavor to it in its modal curvy melody. And I love a good modal melody. So let's hear this. interlude there from the mm. strings then we get that wind melody again the rhythm gets sinewy as the movement goes on and splits into the louder heavier material and the lighter softer more rhythmic material the softer material crescendos to bring the movement to a fortissimo ending yeah there are a lot of these <laughs> anyway track 10 movement three dolce far diente oh this is one of my favorite expressions in italian dolce far niente literally means sweet doing of nothing and it's a response that people say, um, you know, when you say, what are you going to do today? They'll say, oh, dolce far niente. You know, I'm, I'm not doing anything. I'm just going to relax and dumb. Um, Italians think that's the best thing in the world that you can, a person can possibly do. Because <laughs> you're not working, you're just sleeping or lounging around. Act 2 begins with a voluptuous oriental scene in which Ali, the rich slave merchant, is surrounded by his many girls. This starts with a pretty slow harp arpeggio, much like Schubert's Ave Maria. There are percussive bells heard as the material gathers for the modal theme in the reedy winds. By the first minute, we hear the main theme, a light melody played by strings. There's a lot of subtle changing of orchestration in this movement that really pleases the ear, and the orchestra slides into these seamlessly. Track 11, movement 4, Pas de Cymbales. Now, this is a waltz for 16 dancers who carry little cymbals, and the rhythm begins insistently forte and moves up to fortissimo. This is pretty heavy, with stopped cymbal crashes and timpani on each downbeat. It's a little excessive, if you ask me, you know, orchestrationally, let's say. 
it pretty much continues that way throughout the movement. Track 12, Presto. The slave girls tease their master, Ali, and whirl him around and around until he collapses. A very brief finale at a minute and 30 seconds featuring brass in the melodic role. It proceeds with a pretty heavy feel to it. It lightens briefly at the one minute mark, but quickly crescendos to the final chord. I thought this second suite, it had these kind of cool modal melodies, but it was pretty heavy. There was mm -hmm. a lot of fortissimi in it. Anyway, we get to the, uh, the main course here at the end, the symphony, which is what I was looking forward to hearing. Uh, symphony in G minor, 1886. So this work was overshadowed by Sanson's organ symphony, his third symphony, and Franck's symphony in D minor in the days of its origin. And then I guess it just disappeared, whereas we can both hear the Franck and Sanson's symphonies yeah. on multiple recordings. It makes use of earlier music that Lalo composed. It's classically sized. This is another kind of reason why it probably didn't take. There was a neoclassical period that happened in classical music between the wars, or maybe before the First World War. You can hear an example of this on like Prokofiev's uh, Symphony Number no. 1, the classical symphony, where the movements are very short, and they're looking back to Mozart and Haydn's time. The harmony is modern, but the shaping of the phrases is from that era. They're kind of imitating that era. So this is also a classically sized length shape to Haydn and Mozart's era, though the music itself is big-boned and dramatic. So it's got romantic volume and dynamics, but is classically sized. I bet this would have been confusing for audiences of the time. It was a little <laughs> too early for the neoclassical era. Movement one is track 13, Andante, moving to Allegro non troppo. This is the booklet notes here. A mood of gravity is sustained through the first movement. It starts quietly with strings. A wind melody, continued by strings, blooms out of that opening. The dramatic theme appears, then a gentler, quiet one. Lalo's music has a lot of quick ebbing and flowing in it, dynamically, as we've seen. He's not afraid of marking his music fortissimo, those two Fs, maybe even three Fs, under the notes. A lot of this is played at dramatic high volume. For example, here, let's uh, listen to a sample about three minutes in. for one of the uh, pretty quieter parts there, but as you can see, it's sort of sandwiched between these two really louder <laughs> sections. The mood may be one of gravity, but it's a muscular gravity, especially in the fortissimi. As you might expect by now, this has a big dramatic ending. Played fortissimo. Track 14, movement two, vivace. This movement is much lighter. I guess this would be the scherzo sort of movement. The not quite so serious one of the uh, work, of a four movement work. It was a joyous choral dance in the work in which it originated, which was Lalo's opera Fiesque. Its lower central section was a lament in the same opera, and it starts with excitable loud chords, like the opening of Beethoven's Third Symphony. You know how that starts with a bum, bum, and he's got something similar, but with mm -hmm. other um, elements in it. Then moves into a light dancing style, which kind of reminded me of the scherzo, Beethoven's Ninth Movement. You remember that one? Has that same kind of movement to it. 
It shares some rhythmic characteristics with that, but their melody is completely different, though. At a minute and 36 seconds, a twisting modal melody emerges, sounding a bit exotic in the context. The themes do get more boulder-like, boulder meaning like a giant rock, when the uh, chords come in fortissimo. There's a lot of dynamic contrast in this movement. The ending is pretty interesting in that it sounds headed for a big climax, but is interrupted by a quieter section. We do get an accented set of chords at the end, but with some comic pianissimo interruptions. The movement actually ends piano with the strings having the last word, which they've been stubbornly insisting on. It's kind of cute. The uh, third movement, track 15, is marked adagio. It's the slow movement. It's got a heavy string opening with a bit of weight to the tone. The Estonian orchestra plays with a lot of volume, and I'm guessing it's a large orchestra. A sweet wind theme comes in briefly, but the strings build up to a passionate statement. Again, we get contrasting themes, soft, then loud. It ends with a somber string statement. And the final track on the album, the last movement, Allegro. Begins with the string intro. The winds take us into the bubbling first theme. Um, that seems like a sort of diabolical dance with its one, two, fifths in the bass, like dun, 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 dun. Kind of like a march. There's some nice fluttering figures from the winds in the second minute. But the movement heads for a big dramatic ending, which is great, <laughs> but by now, totally expected. Let me just kind of give a, one final sample of that about a minute in. accents are really loud bam yeah <laughs> they really jolt you out of your seat anyway here we have a full album of lalo's music perhaps the first we've had of lalo's compositions i'm sure there were others but i don't remember them so this is the first full album i've probably heard as a composer he's not exactly full of surprises compositionally but he does have some interesting orchestration tricks up his sleeve and his material is attractive the first thing i'd like to mention is the energy and power especially power and your energy too, yeah, that Nemi Yervi gets out of the orchestra. Like I said, he was 85 years old when this recording was made and conducts with all of the experience of his years, combined with the energy of a 30-year-old. It's amazing. He clearly believes in the music and makes the orchestra and us believe in it too. Men like him are an inspiration to me as the years begin to pass, especially considering that his son Pavo is only three years older than me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is really old-school recording from the Estonian National Symphony Orchestra and Nemejervi, with the orchestra going for a massive sound on the fortissimi. It's satisfying to hear. We don't hear orchestras this big playing chord-based material like this much anymore. When you hear an orchestra of like a larger size, it's usually playing like a Mahler work, which is usually has a lot of sort of quieter like sections, painting like colors and you know of sound and things like that, rather than having. All of them play at the same time, the same chord. Anyway, Chandos' album cover art makes the album seem like it was released long ago with its cream tinting of the image. I actually had to check to make sure this wasn't an album from the archives, and it's not. It's brand new. The music from the ballet Namuna is intoxicating in its orchestration combined with its dance rhythms. The suite tends to air on the loud side. It's incredible how many of those movements are end fortissimo. 
Lalo doesn't quite have the light touch we associate with French composers, but that really came later with Debussy and Ravel in the early 20th century. But he does have some subtle orchestration tricks, which come up pretty frequently on this album. The ballet itself seems to proceed as a set of set pieces, very much in the style of 19th century ballets. The symphony has attractive themes, and the compositional approach isn't much different to the other works on the album, though more conservative material than Namuna. It's more entertaining than anything else, and an enjoyable listen, as is this entire album. Turn up the big orchestra sound, and uh, have your neighbors knocking at your door. <laughs> yeah, reading the notes was rather insightful for me about him as a composer. Lalo seems to have been kind of a victim of circumstance. He was in the wrong place <laughs> in time for his music to be appreciated, really. Although now, with the lens of time, this music has a lot to offer in its pleasing melodic content rich harmonies, and the use of the colors of the orchestra. I guess he really wanted to be considered as an opera composer. But yeah, then they all did in the time, he was yeah. uh, requested to write this ballet, which he was kind of uh, frustrated over. And uh, I think he actually ended up giving himself a stroke while uh, trying to get it right. completed by the yeah. deadline. Yeah, kind of an unfortunate story. But listening to it now, everything is an enjoyable and these performances are really enthusiastic, as you pointed out. Yarvi doing a lot to bring out the charm of all the compositions. And I was noticing that in the symphony, too. The movements are really short. Right. <laughs> and, uh, so there's a lot packed in there, a lot going on in a short space of time. But right. uh, I found them kind of exciting and dynamic. Yeah, the music on this album was all new to me, too. And I really, mm. I really appreciated that. So thank you, Neymar Yarvi. I was glad to hear that he was at the podium again. All right, our second album is an album of Italian songs and um, by a rather famous composer that we don't really know anymore, Francesco Paolo Tosti. This is an album called Sogno. And this is the, uh, I think, the second album that we're hearing from Javier Camarena as the tenor. He's a Mexican tenor, and he's accompanied here by Angel Rodriguez on the piano. This is on the Pentatone label. Now, last year, one of the reasons I wanted to hear this, well, there are two reasons. One of them is that Camarena did a record last year of a Donizetti arias called Signor Gaetano. Okay, which from, you know, Gaetano Donizetti. Hmm. And the voice is really beautiful. It's a sweet, really um, lyrical Italian tenor voice that we just don't hear anymore. I believe two years ago we talked about um, Freddy Di Tommaso, who has this right. kind of voice. It's, it, his is a bigger voice. But Camarena's is, it's smaller, but it's, it's sweeter too. It's really, it's got this beautiful, sweet sound to it. And I could listen to this kind of voice, you know, all day really. The other reason I wanted to hear this album is it's an, entire album of songs by Francesco Paolo Tosti. We often hear his most famous songs sung by tenors as a part of a collection of works. Most famously, um, Pavarotti did two of these songs on his album, O Sole Mio, which is all Neapolitan songs. Tosti wrote Italian songs, but also Neapolitan songs, and as we'll find out, even French songs. Anyway, it's rare to hear a recording of all Tosti songs, and I've heard one or two in the past, and to be honest, they were kind of boring, because most of his songs are sort of drawing room songs, the type of thing where you'd be visiting a person's like salon and someone would play the piano and they'd sing. It's sort mm -hmm. of like family entertainment in a way. You know, made for families in the 19th century, because how they used to uh, have fun. But this is different. It's, um, well, let's... Take a look here. In the booklet, Camarena mentions the times he first heard some of the great Tosti songs. And I think I'm sort of like this too. I can think of certain singers that I associate with certain of these songs. 
It's a long list. I'll mention them as they come up. A lot of his first hearings were by the same artists I first heard sing these songs too. Two songs that he mentions that are not on this album are Adio, which he heard sung by uh, Kraus, and Ideale, which he heard by Ramon Vargas, who is his uh, contemporary, I think, or his compatriot, let's say, shall we say. Tosti mainly composed salon music, Romanza di Salotto in Italian. He composed 500 of them. Wow. So he's up there with um, Schubert, but Schubert wrote <laughs> art songs. There's a difference, okay? These were meant to be just performed for the pleasure of singing and performing for your guests and friends. He was admired by the aristocracy, particularly in England, but in writing songs at the end of the 19th century, he produced a commodity that people from across the class spectrum wanted to buy. So he's very much in this, hmm. you know, because he's good at it, but he's in it really for the money. He wants the sales here. So he's writing attractive melodic songs. He wrote parlor songs that people of moderate ability could perform and enjoy in their own homes in an age in which vast numbers of households owned pianos. Nevertheless, his compositions were immediately recognizable by their melodies as being by him. So he is unique. The songs selected for this album give us an overview of the different facets of Tosti's style. And that's what makes this album attractive. It's the program is organized in an appealing and contrasting way. So it wasn't just like a list of you know songs that were all sort of parlor songs that you'd have to hear one after the other. There's a lot of variety on this album, and Camarena and Rodriguez obviously did a lot of work in putting this together. The booklet writer, Alexandra Wilson, remarks that, this is a quote now, by the 1910s, progressive musical figures in Italy composers and musicologists alike were starting to mock the popular 19th century style which in interwar britain anything that smacked of victorian values was distinctly out of fashion with the intelligentsia ah oh, the intelligentsia they ruin everything <laughs> don't they singers from amelta galli curci to luciano pavarotti continued to perform and record tosti's music but as time went on the composer ceased to be a household name Though he barely features in most histories of 19th and early 20th century music, because you know, we have to have only you know serious highbrow right. music in, in that, right? You can't have the other popular music of the day, which would really count as classical music now. It's unknown today, even to many keen music lovers, it is time to rediscover the oeuvre of Francesco Paolo Tosti, and I agree with Ms. Wilson. It is time to rediscover it. I've known some of it really all my life. Let's see what we've got here. We start this out pretty impressively with um, Quattro Canzoni d'Amaranta. So these are more complex songs by Tosti. This is going to be the most complex songs on the album. So he's really starting us out with some, I won't say highbrow, but higher brow music than the rest <laughs> of it. These were written in collaboration with Gabriele D'Annunzio, who's uh, the great Italian poet, also a fascist and supporter of Mussolini, <laughs> which uh, kind of made you know, detracted from his, um, you know, Legacy, reputation. Yeah. But he is still remembered today as a great poet. He had a lot of influence in the arts when he was alive. And he wrote a lot of great musical lyrics, too. The songs take philosophical inspiration from Wagner's Tristan and Isolde, who are figures from Denunzio, <laughs> in their symbolic reflection on themes of day, night, life, and death. Yeah, he's, he is a great poet, it has to be said. Okay, the first uh, track here, Lashami. Lascia chi io respire. Leave me. Let me breathe. <laughs> this starts with dramatic tolling piano chords with rippled chords. This is a long intro before we hear the voice, and it's really quite a tease for the first track on the album. 
first word is finally sung one minute and 40 seconds into the song. Camarena's is a beautiful, light, creamy tenor voice, Italianate and immediately appealing, very old school. There's a bit of a teardrop in the tone at the words, Aime Signore, which means alas, Lord. Alas is a good translation of that word, Aime, because they're both old-fashioned words. And a bit of a sob at the words, Tutta l'erba sinsanguina d'amore. All of the grass bleeds with love. <laughs> this is D'Annunzio for you, okay? These are the kind of images he has. I'm really not a fan of that, but that's okay. Audiences like it. The voice is very exposed in this song, and this is another important point about Tosti's music. It has many held vowels, and we get to hear the sweet quality of Camarena's tone very clearly. Sensitive accompaniment throughout by Rodriguez, and he makes sure we're focused on the singer. I want to mention something about this. The voice is very exposed in Tosti's songs. That means that it's really front and center, and like the old Italian um, aria antica that students learn when they're in music school. You can hear every flaw in the voice with these kinds of exposed melodies like this. I'll give you a sample for the next track. But what this does is you can really tell the quality of the voice that you're hearing. And we're hearing a very high quality voice here. I should mention too that uh, Camarena is now 47 years old. He'll be 48 in March 2024. And that's getting towards the end of your career as an opera singer at least. He may still be able to keep doing these art song albums. But we're kind of hearing him towards the end now, which is a little sad because it's a gorgeous voice. I wish I had known about it earlier. Track two, Lauba Separa Dalla Luce L'Ombra. This song is more upbeat. That means um, the dawn separates uh, the light from the dark. The song is more upbeat, very lyrical. The lyrics, welcoming death. <laughs> this is a big <laughs> thing in the 19th century. They were really into examining death in the arts and things like that. It's a good one to sample. We get to hear the quality of the voice, and uh, it comes in pretty quickly in this one, so I'm just going to start this from the beginning. Mop me off the floor. <laughs> I'm dripping. Anyway, the tone is gorgeous, as you heard, and there's a great high note at the end ringing out clearly. He has to sing out in this song, too, so we get a sense of his power a little bit, too. The third uh, track, In Van Pregi, I guess that means um, praying in vain. Camarena quietens his tone, and we're becoming aware of his uh, versatility in these four, first four tracks. This really helps the song cycle as well, keeping all of the songs interesting. I'm getting a sense of how Tosti's songs reveal the quality of the voice singing them. The vocal lines are very exposed, as I said. And this is a beautifully performed song. Let's hear the uh, sort of held back opening here.
there's something pleading and boyish about that voice that's just immediately attractive. It really sounds like a young voice. All right, now track four, Che dici o parola del saggio. This is uh, sung in a yet more subdued tone, and it goes low in Camarena's range. The words trascorre le fonti ove beve, bringing him to his tone's limits. Moving across the the fountains where I drink, I guess that means. Hmm. He sounds fine, though, still in good tone at the bottom of his range. I've mentioned the voices exposed in these songs, and that draws attention to the words. Uh, they're enunciated clearly. You could actually follow them if you're an Italian speaker without the text, although Danunzia's poetry can be pretty opaque. One verse goes, The employer of joy no longer has garlands. He gave the cypress to love and the myrtle to she who is greater. Wow. <laughs> See, when you hear a line like that and somebody sings it and then the song keeps going, but you're like, wait, I have to figure out what that means. <laughs> you have to just sort of sort it all out. You really need to puzzle out that symbolism. Anyway, it's a beautifully executed performance, well-paced, and beautiful tone throughout. Track five, Malia. This is not uh, about former President Obama's daughter. <laughs> it's a word in Italian. Okay, this has simple, symmetrical four-bar phrases and a regular, gently undulating vocal line, making it within easy grasp of the domestic musician. This is welcome after the heavy symbolism of the first four songs. The piano plays a pretty, bright accompaniment. The tune is lyrical and straightforward, very much of the salon. It's a bit of a palate cleanse after the opening song cycle. The piano is more present in this performance, but Camarena's tone floats easily above it. Track six, Aprile, April. This is also a straightforward salon song with rippling arpeggiated piano accompaniment. And I have to say, Camarena makes these songs that can easily fade into simple attractiveness come alive with his phrasing and tone and his dedication too. That's no slight on the song. It's attractive. It's just that hearing a lot of this type of song in a single recital can make them blur together. And that doesn't happen here. And that's due to Camarena's approach. Track seven, Sonio. This is the title track of the album. It means dream. Camarena first heard this song by Carlo Bergonzi, who many of us might remember. I don't know if he was alive when I was younger, but he was from, he's a singer from the 1960s. I think he, he was around Collis's, Maria Collis's um, era. Camarena really relishes the lyricism here. I'll start at about 45 seconds so you can hear him mid-verse. That's a pretty drawn-out verse there. I had to let it go a little long to get to that cadence. The breathy approach to the words Masognavo, but I was dreaming, are very effective. Track 8, L'Ultima Canzone. Camarena first heard this sung by Jose Carreras. Uh, many of us who were around in the 90s remember the Three Tenors concert. Right. Carreras being one of those three tenors, one of the three greats of his age. 
This has a pretty upbeat rhythm, and this sounds a bit like a morning song, which would be a matinata in Italian. The tempo changes momentarily, and the second verse, Foglia di Rosa, which means a rose leaf, it's a rather sad song, and the vocalist's old love is marrying someone else, and he still loves her and recalls their past love. This is such an Italian sentiment, jeez. <laughs> <You know? laughs> oh, my old girl, she's marrying someone else, but I still love her, and I'll think of her forever. There's a lot of room <laughs> for varied expression in this song, and like Carreras before him, Camarena relishes those moments and makes the most of them. Tracks 9 through 11, we get another departure. These are French songs. Melodie. Number one, track nine, Mon Bien Aimé. This has elegance and poise. We move to a different expression here with these French songs. The piano accompaniment is arpeggiated chords, nothing fancy. I personally think Camarena sounds more natural in Italian than he does in French. Indeed, his voice seems to be in the Italian style. He really wants to put it across these Italianate melodies in French, and indeed the contour of the melody would fit Italian much better. So that's Tosti's doing. But we've got more of the squashed vowels of French here. And I'm getting the sense that he really wants to give this open-throated sound, but the French language doesn't allow that. So he's, <laughs> he, I feel like he's kind of trying to resist doing that. Track 10, this is number two, Petite Valse Romantique. Again, I'm getting the feeling that the contour of the melody doesn't suit the French language and its vowels sounds much. Camarena, even in French, has an Italianate delivery and a way of singing vowels. Track 11, number three of this set of French songs, Avec Toi, with you. Again, highly lyrical writing, but those vowel sounds don't quite suit the open-throated melody, so we have this for three tracks. Camarena is very good in his French pronunciation. I just think the language doesn't suit the music, really. Tosti writes in a manner that exposes the vowel sounds and sustains them, and the French language doesn't invite that. The songs are appealing, no doubt, these three songs didn't really take for me, though. But it's good to hear this rare outing for them. They provide some variety in the program. I think I'd like to hear a native-speaking French singer sing these songs. I wonder how he would approach them. Mm -hmm. He'd probably use a different approach. It'd be pretty interesting. Track 12, Because of You. It's an English song. Yeah. How about that? Because Tosti was well-known in England as well. It's also a Salon song, given the straightforward piano accompaniment. Camarena's got a bit of an accent, that's to be expected, I guess, but sings clearly enough. This also has an Italianate melody that doesn't quite suit English, but I think a native English-speaking singer could make the passion and lyricism here register more effectively by the way he hits certain consonants or accents and things like that. Nevertheless, Camarena's gorgeous tone makes this appealing enough. Track 13, Vorrei morire. This is such an Italian expression. I want to die. Camarena first heard this sung by Jose Carreras again. The song flips from dark melancholy to bright exuberance as it reflects on the prospect of dying. Some interesting changes of texture in the opening piano line, and we can hear right away that Camarena fits the Italian language right into the melodic contours. The middle section gets a bit more passionate, then for the last section we go back into a heavy melancholy. Okay, track 14, here we go. This is one of my favorite songs ever. Avukella. It's a Neapolitan song, and the lyrics are by Gabriele D'Annunzio again, the fascist poet. <laughs> he, he, here in really lyrical mode. You almost kind of want to forgive him, you know? Camarena first heard this song by Luciano Pavarotti, and so did I, and what a version that is. It's on the album O Sole Mio, and uh, really it's one of the best albums of Neapolitan songs like 
ever recorded because Pavarotti just had such a great voice and uh, he puts these songs across so well. It's a Neapolitan song and the piano plays the opening, uh, Vucella, but this is in Italian. It's a Neapolitan word. It means like a pretty little mouth like a, that the girl has that the singer wants to kiss. So it's a romantic song. The piano plays the opening line gently and expressively. Camarena's light tenor serves this song well. He sort of shortens the ending, vowel sounds of words, giving them a bit of rhythmic bounce. Let's hear the beginning of this. I just love this song. Let's listen to what I'm talking about here. that the um, approach is different than Pavarotti's, you know, very famous version. But I just like the Pavarotti so much more, I have to say. He, he's, he's distinctive, though. I like that Camarena took this approach. He has a high note at the end, and he sings it twice. The first time, the high note isn't quite up to the beauty of Pavarotti's version. On the second go, though, he's more effective. And I'm going to give you a sample of that, too. Let's hear just the, the high note at the very end. This is the climax of the song. Camarena brings a light playfulness to this song. It's, it's an appealing interpretation. It's very personal. Pavarotti remains my favorite. Absolutely hear that if, if you don't know this song. It's really magical. Track 15, Luna d'estate, The Summer Moon. This is a light salon song with a lyrical melody. It's pretty straightforward. Camarena lending his lyrical voice. By now I suspect we've heard everything he can do as far as his tone goes. <laughs> there is still a lot more to go on this album. Track 16 is one of the most famous Neapolitan songs in existence, Maracchiare. This is arranged by the pianist Angel Rodriguez. It's usually performed with an orchestra. Camarena first heard this song sung by Giuseppe Di Stefano, one of the great tenors of the uh, mid-20th century. I first heard it on that same O Solemio album by uh, Luciano Pavarotti, and that's a, another great version. Uh, it's a Neapolitan song named after a small village on the coast. And Camarena's approach here is similar to Pavarotti's, and he gets a lot of the same quality out of his phrasing. Let me just play this first, and then I'm going to have a little complaint about the way this song is presented in the booklet. But let's hear the opening. Quando sponta la luna mare chiare, pure li pisce in ceppanna al lavore. Mm. 
Se revoltano l'onde del mare per la priezza cagliano culore quando sporta la luna mare chiare. And then in the next verse, the entire you know, rhythm and tempo change. It's almost like two songs in mm-hmm. one. All right, now, I have an issue here. The booklet provides the words in Italian, yet Camarena sings the Neapolitan words, which are different. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm one, I think that uh, somebody just grabbed these words and said, oh, these are the words, and put them in the booklet. But he's singing the Neapolitan words, is Camarena here. Um, there's a very famous line in the second verse where the rhythm changes that goes... Amarachiare cestana fenesta, uh, which means uh, in Marachiare there's a window. But the Italian version printed here doesn't even mention Marachiare, which is the name of the song. <laughs> it goes, mi son fermata una finestra in fiore. It, it kind of squeezes something from the next lines into that, too. And that's fine if you're giving an Italian performance of this song, but uh, th- this isn't what he's singing here. It's important because the first line is repeated at the end of the verses, and the text also doesn't mention the main love interest in this song, Caruli, whose name is uh, in the first and last lines of the final verse, and the Italian version doesn't even mention her. Oh, Caruli has been suppressed from the text. This song is famous enough that you can find the Neapolitan words online with translations. If you want to look up uh, Roberto Murillo's site, because a lot of the... uh, Italian text and translations are available there. It's an appealing performance. Again, not quite with Pavarotti's commanding presence yet. Yeah, Pavarotti, we don't. He's got this really manly voice. I mean, you look at him and he looks like a big teddy bear, but uh, <laughs> he had like real, you know, power and there's a real manliness to his singing. That if we're not listening, we're not really hearing it. If we're looking at him. All right, moving on. Track 17, Apri, which means open, open the door, or something like that. The piano part is very salon-like here. This is a pretty straightforward song with a symmetrical phrasing pattern. There's a nice change to the higher register on the words Lora che sospirama sorta, the hour we sigh for, has appeared, marking the arrival of the hour. Cabmarinia is alive to these changes, and his voice picks up a brightness at these lines. I think he makes a bit too much of the rolled R's in this piece. Otherwise, it's great with a fantastic high note at the end, remaining full-toned. Amazing. Now, I want to say something. Cabarina sometimes will have to end with a high note, and sometimes he hits them so beautifully, and sometimes they're eh, just okay. So they're, they're kind of varied, I think. This is one of the uh, more successful high notes. Apri, track 17. Track 18, Regret, a French song, and here Cabarina pulls back his vowels a bit and is in full romantic pining mode here. This particular song sounds great in French. He just manages to hit this one right. Track 19, Penso. Back to Italian with a repetitive chord-based piano line that changes for the second verse. The vocal line is lyrical, perfect for Camarena's style. I'm going to sample a little bit of this. There's a nice little uh, false cadence there, too, at the end there. Track 20, First Waltz, arranged for piano by the pianist Angel Rodriguez. This is about the sheer delight of love and the importance of seizing the moment. 
It's toasty at his lightest and most effervescent. Arpeggiated introduction, very typical of this type of song. The text is in English. Camarena's pronunciation is good. He tends to, and this is true in French too, he'll err on the side of overpronouncing certain sounds. Listen to see if you can tell what I'm talking about. I'm going to sample this from about the minute and 15 second point. Yeah, even a last word. I'll check pick that one. Born, you know, it's like the, he's kind of separating the R from the end where it normally would go like as a single sound, you know. It's a good approach, though. It's better than underpronouncing the words so if they're not understandable. And I've heard opera singers do that for sure. It's no matter. He phrases beautifully, and it's a pleasure to hear him sing this song. He's got a fantastic Pavarotti-esque high note at the end. This one this is a really good high note, in fact. Track 21, Kitarata Abruzzese. This is dedicated to Enrico Caruso uh, and it alternates passages of almost Eastern-sounding chromaticism with bright major key passages that rise upwards in optimistic fashion. We end with an Italian song. It's very lyrical. One could imagine Caruso singing it, especially in the more Italianate passages. The high note at the end is impressive, but it's not his best one. I thought that came on the previous track, First Waltz. Anyway, we're sent off with that high note. It's not as secure as the previous tracks. Anyway, so we have here a varied program of Tosti's songs, and I would agree it's time to bring them back, especially if we have a lyric tenor like Camarena's to sing them. I'm not entirely sure there are many young tenors at present who could put these across as effectively as the tenors of the past, but Camarena is certainly one of them, a lyric tenor to keep an ear on. That said, this program, though commendably varied, is strongest when Camarena is singing in Italian or the Neapolitan dialect. The French and English songs, because the vocal line is so exposed, would benefit from more attention to the sound of the words, although his pronunciation is fine enough that we could easily understand what he's singing. A native-speaking vocalist in these songs would know how to shape the vowels and consonants to get the words to resonate more. Camarena is effective in these songs, but there's more there than he's putting across. I also felt that throughout this recital, we heard the full range of Camarena's vocal abilities. He can do passion and lyricism well, particularly lyricism. He's got a beautiful tone that can hush with mystery or sing out with full-tone passion, and it's always beautiful. But for such a long program, this is an hour and 20 minutes, actually. It's, yeah. That's a lot of songs for a recital. I would have liked to hear more variety of expression. If you listen to this in parts, it'll be appealing, but towards the end, I had figured out what to expect. I have to say, though, that the high note at the end of First Waltz, the penultimate track, came as a Pavarotti-esque surprise, beautifully taken. In the end, I said it already, it's a beautiful voice, one to be grateful for and look out for. The world is lacking in this type of Italianate lyricism at the moment. We have Freddy Di Tommaso, and we have Javier Camarena. I'm excited to hear more from him in the future, from Camarena, really from Di Tommaso too. Uh, I hope more voices of this type will emerge. Well, certainly are a lot of wonderful melodies here. Looking at the booklet as I was listening, 
I was struck by the impossibly romantic lyrics here. I kind of needed my uh, raincoat because I was drenched in romanticism with all these uh, poetic phrases in there. Russ, they reminded me of my whole life. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, nevertheless, Camarena brings out the charm in this music. And what I liked about him, other than his impressive vocal quality, is that he really makes you feel that he believes all the sentiments in each song as he's singing them. So you get a real kind of honest conveying of the emotion that's in those lyrics. So. Yeah, and that, that's important for singers, too. Yes, right? the most important thing, yeah. All right, so a third album in the classical section, Mendelssohn, and some contemporary composers, too. These are Mendelssohn's uh, complete cello works, and by two stars, really, Sol Gabetta on the cello, she's mm. Argentinian, and Bertrand Chamoyou, a favorite pianist yes. of ours, the French pianist. We heard him on that uh, Satie album in right. December that we loved so much and picked as one of our best of the year. This is on the Sony Classical label, and it's a two-CD uh, set, although it comes mm. in at like an hour and 23 minutes, so not very long for two CDs. So it's separated to two CDs. The first one has 18 tracks featuring the compositions by Mendelssohn, so it's a complete Mendelssohn program. And the second CD has the works by contemporary composers, contemporary to us composers, on tracks 19 through 25. Now, if you're listening on streaming, the list separates the um, two CDs, but you're just going to hear the whole thing straight through without any interruption. And let me tell you, it's really jarring. <laughs> it's a big change. <laughs> you switch yeah. from the Mendelssohn to the um, the contemporary composers. Not just because of the music, but because the instruments change as well. well. Let me get to that. In the Mendelssohn works that we hear on CD1, tracks 1 to 18 on your streaming, Sol Gabetta plays the Bonami Dobre Sugio Cello by Antonio Stradivari, which was made in 1717. So Stradivarius made uh, cellos as well as mm. violins. And this is on loan from the Stradivari Foundation. Habas Reutiger and Bertrand Chamayou is playing a forte piano by Julius Bluthner, number 726 Leipzig, made in 1859. So this would have been a contemporary piano of Mendelssohn's. Model 255, Concert Grand. Collection Klavier Werkstatt Christoph Kern Stauffen im Breisgau. Man, this is... <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of... Uh, we're we going to know what exactly which piano this is if we ever have to pick it out of a group. huh? Restored in tune by Christoph Kern. I'm pretty sure that what you're looking at sitting on its side on the album cover is that piano. So it's not right. as big as a modern concert grand. And for the contemporary works on the uh, second CD, tracks 19 through 25, Gabetta plays a cello by Matteo Goffriller, provided by the Atelier Cells Paris. And Chamayou plays a Steinway model, D. 587340. So it's a modern Steinway. The duo have been playing together for 17 to 18 years and are just now, that's about how, as long as we've been playing together, us as yeah. uh, as music uh, commentators, I guess. We've been longer than that, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Not on this podcast, of course, no. but just in the various uh, rooms that we've uh, gathered in yes. with our friends just before they abandoned us. <laughs> just now we're getting around to, re- they were recording this uh, Mendelssohn album, an album they say they have always wanted to make. And I loved this. At mm, least it's nice. CD one. <laughs> Let's yeah. get into this. <laughs> we'll talk about the other ones Tracks later. One through nine. Well, yeah, I like CD two too, but it's a different kettle of fish. Let's take a look at this. All right, so tracks one through nine are Variation Concertante, Opus seventeen, from eighteen thirty nine. Mendelssohn wrote this at the request of his brother Paul, who played the cello. Now we know about Fanny Mendelssohn, right? Mm. Felix's piano playing and composing sister, who 
wasn't really permitted to go out and be a professional composer because, you know, women didn't do that in those mm. days. But Paul, he had some kind of government job, but he was a cellist too. And Mendelssohn wrote this for him. Mendelssohn was really the professional musician in the family. But the brothers gave the first performance of this work together. It's a theme in variations, and it's separated into nine tracks. And this drives me crazy because each variation <laughs> is like a minute long. Or less, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that if you're programming a CD, if you're doing something that's an album length of variation, like uh, the Goldberg variations or uh, the Diabelli variations by Beethoven, then you would separate them into separate tracks. But these all could have been one track. Is anybody going to go and listen to one variation only? I don't know. Anyway, I would want to hear the whole work because it's only like about 10 minutes long. Anyway, the theme, the first track, uh, the piano gets that and the notes wonder if Felix wanted to keep the theme for himself rather than giving it to his brother first. <laughs> this kind of seems like a, yeah. a family thing. Oh, I'm the composer. I'm going to play the theme first. In fact, the piano gets a lot of the most attractive material in this piece. It's a warm theme, very simple phrasing, uh, which the cello accompanies first, uh, then plays, and then a B section follows. Anyway, let's hear that theme just to get us started off. And we can hear the beautiful sound of this uh, Stradivari cello and the Bluthner piano that perhaps Mendelssohn himself may have played. pretty. Variation one comes next on track two. The first three variations are uniform in structure, but the writing becomes increasingly virtuosic, so the excitement builds. Staccato piano is heard in this one as the cello plays the theme. It's pretty simple and close to the theme. Track three, variation two, the piano gets the theme with some rippling additions, and the cello takes over for the second half and adds figuration. Track four, variation three, più vivace. This speeds up the figuration even more and has a dramatic climax for the first half of the theme. Track five, variation four, allegro con fuoco. Tempests rage through the piano part, underscored by brief comments from the cello that drive the musical argument forward. The piano is playing rapidly moving chords here with the cello accompanying for the first half. The cello gets a melodic statement at the end. I'm really curious about this. He could have easily made this a solo piano work. <laughs> I guess he wanted to get his brother involved. Anyway, track six, variation five, Listesso Tempo, takes a different direction. It has the echo of a quiet noble march whose tripping dotted rhythms, uh, reminiscent of a French overture and slyly winking pizzicato writing, could be an ironical commentary in the style of of a Papageno. This is from the booklet notes, Papageno being the character from The Magic Flute by Mozart. This is still highly active with the piano playing staccato block harmonies and the cello occasionally adds pizzicati. Track 7, Variation 6, the stesso tempo, gives a sense of relaxation. The cello plays a flowing line as the piano outlines the harmony via shifting chords. Track 8, Variation 7, presto and agitato, and the music shifts to the minor here. The piano explores its gloomy lower register, according to the booklet notes. The theme appears almost to be persecuted, and the cello writing at the end grows increasingly recitative-like in character. The booklet notes also mention that it recalls Schubert's 
Earl Koenig with the uh, galloping horse piano line in that song. It moves quickly with the piano producing a galloping rhythm while the cello aggressively plays the theme. The piano gets an extremely aggressive cadenza and then the cello comes back in to lead from the variation to the next one. We get variation eight on track nine and then followed by a coda. The last variation reasserts itself in its clearest form. I'm starting with the book of notes and then going into my comment on this. The coda brings elegance to the ending and the piano outlines the theme with the cello droning on a single note. The cello then gets a statement in the B section of the theme, but even still, the piano comes in with parts of the theme. A storm develops with the cello double stopping and the piano momentarily galloping. This is the coda now. The cello then gets the theme at a minute and 48 seconds over rippling piano accompaniment, and the piano plays the theme for the B section. The piece ends calmly. All right, the first of two cello sonatas is next, tracks 10 through 12, sonata for cello and piano number one in B flat major, opus 45. This is a clearly structured work in classical three-movement form. It's character closer to Mozart or Haydn than to Liszt or Chopin. I think that was often the case with Mendelssohn. He had his sort of romantic ideas, but in form, he, he I think he liked to stick near the classical era. Track 10, Movement 1, Allegro Vivace. This starts like a musical dialogue. A rising line is heard in both cello and piano, and we get the throaty low end of the cello sounding great on this Stradivari cello played by Sol Gabetta. Then it states the theme clearly with the piano answering. The second half of the first theme has the piano playing the melody with the piano enveloping it in arpeggios. The second theme, heard in the cello at a minute and 40 seconds, is surprisingly aggressive with quick repeated notes in the piano's left hand. I really like the throaty sound Gabetta gets at the bottom of her range, which this movement gives us ample opportunity to hear. This is a beautiful sounding cello. At the 3 minute and 35 second mark, we hear the repeat of the opening as in a classical era work. It's played with new expression, the second theme especially coming across more aggressively than when we first heard it. And the first theme sounds gentler. Chamoyou's piano would have a quick action in order for him to play those repeated notes so quickly. The development section moves through new key areas, the figuration staying much the same for lengths of time, then suddenly changing to something familiar from the first statement. I'm amazed at the aggression that Chamoyou gets out of this period piano. It's fuller sounding than period pianos usually are, though it's not as full sounding as a modern piano, of course. At 9 minutes and 18 seconds, we're back to the first theme in the recapitulation section of this sonata movement. And I want to sample here to give you an idea of both the richness of the cello's tone and the fleetness Shamoyu gets out of his more aggressive material. switch to the minor in the middle mm. of that too. It was really nice. The movement has an exciting heated up ending and that was only heading towards it. Track 11, movement two, the andante, the cello plays a Lendler-like melody. This is an Austrian folk dance. After the piano's light, hesitant rhythm, 
in the opening. Yeah, you know what a Lendler is. If you saw The Sound of Music, that's the uh, the dance that uh, Julie Andrews is doing with uh, Christopher mm -hmm. Plummer when they fall in love in that scene. Anyway, the piano plays the B melody solo. Then the opening returns with the cello now getting the B melody after the piano states it. At the two-minute mark, a smoother, more song-like theme appears in the cello. When the dance theme comes back at 3 minutes and 15 seconds, the piano plays its staccato with pizzicati in the cello accompanying. And this makes a really interesting sound, especially on these instruments. I'd like to sample this. that makes a straightforward statement of the theme and there's an extended section for the piano before we hear the duo make their last statement of the theme. Track 12 is the third and final movement, Allegro Assai. This is variations on a theme or rather two themes as far as I can make out because there are two sections, one slow followed by a faster galloping section. A straightforward almost folk-like theme with a B section in the piano or I guess if you can say a middle eight maybe before we hear the theme again. This goes into a galloping section afterwards that really doesn't resemble the theme. The next section slows down a bit and then starts off at the same speed as the opening with a different approach though we can make out the theme's contours. The galloping rhythm returns at about two minutes and 50 seconds and I'm going to sample that at that point. You're supposed to make the piano and the uh, the other instrument equal partners, but I think Mendelssohn <laughs> tends to make the piano yeah. the more equal of the two. He, he seems to like the sound of the piano. Anyway, the slower opening theme returns, then the galloping theme turns to rapid arpeggiated figuration in the piano. The piano has much more to do than the cello in all three movements of this work. Again, this one was also played by Mendelssohn with his brother, Paul. <laughs> I don't think he really... <laughs> Wanted Paul to be playing all that much. I don't know. He wanted to be. He, I think Felix wanted the spotlight himself because Felix would have played the piano. The movement and work has a pretty ending with rippling arpeggiated chords accompanying the cello to its final notes. Track 13, Asai Tranquilo in B minor from 1835. And this piece didn't appear in print until 2002. It's melancholic and song like, like a song without words. And I guess it was known about, but it wasn't like ever printed. It was, it was in somebody's collection somewhere when it was first discovered, probably in the uh, 20th century. The cello plays the melody over some figured accompaniment in the piano that draws the ear. The piano then gets the theme as the cello plays an accompanying line. A new melody then plays and draws us into darker tonal areas. At a minute and 20 seconds, the opening theme returns in the lower mid-range of the cello. At two minutes, there's a long pause. Then the cello thumps out a repeating bass note as the piano builds up tension with arpeggiated material. 
The cello starts a melody, bringing it to a high moment of crisis, then dipping down into more melodic material. There's one fragmentary statement of the theme to end the piece, and it's very attractive. The sonata for cello and piano number two that follows, this is a four-movement work, tracks 14 through 17, in D major, opus 58, is symphonic in nature. And this one was not premiered by Mendelssohn with his brother Paul, and I'm guessing for that reason <laughs> the cello has much more to do in this one. Anyway, the first movement is Allegro Assai Vivace. It begins lightly, but the theme will become melancholic in its minor key variant. I'm just going to sample the beginning of this piece. too long there yeah i like the way they draw out the, the skipping quality of the dotted notes in that theme it, the rhythmic mm. profile is really strong the piano has the quick action on its repeated chords as you heard and the cello goes down into its throaty end when the piano has the theme a slower second theme is heard in the cello at a minute and 15 seconds the piano repeats it after it's fully stated the cadence ending the exposition has some impressive virtuosity from both musicians when accompanying the rapid repeated notes on the cello, and the fast figuration on the piano. After this, after about 2 minutes and 30 seconds, the development starts. The excitement calms down in the fourth minute for a quiet statement of a theme fragment. The cello then starts building it up with the piano passing through keys until at 4 minutes and 40 seconds we're at the exposition again, or the recapitulation, I should say. Once again, we hear that fast action on the piano in the accompaniment, a funny thing about this in the previous sonata is that the one instrument will have the theme, the other will be drawing the ear because of its impressive athletics. The movement ends on a note of triumph. So yeah, you're always listening to both instruments throughout, no matter who has the theme. Mm. Track 15, Allegretto Scherzando. I'm going to sample the uh, beginning of this, which starts as a humoresque and moves to a funeral march later that colors the rest of the movement according to the notes. I'll have something to say about that too, but let's listen. the quality of the uh, pizzicato notes on the cello there. They just really resonate yeah. really beautifully on that instrument. The piano plays the opening theme rather fast, given the fast action of the piano. This is one of the great things about these period instruments. They're a lot kind of, well, not necessarily, but certain ones are a lot fleeter on their uh, action. So you can actually play very fast and then a new quality sort of comes to the music when you do that. And Shamayu achieves that beautifully here. The cello is played pizzicati with short, bowed tones, and I like the way it's perfectly audible behind the sound of the period piano. The piano sound here is playful and light, Chamayu creating a playful atmosphere. Gabetta comes in seamlessly and perfectly in character with Chamayu's teasing approach for her melodies. At a minute and 46 seconds, we hear a lyrical theme in the cello with the piano accompanying in traditional fashion. 
At three minutes and one seconds, we hear the opening theme again, with the cello's pizzicati coming through strongly and satisfyingly. The second theme is heard again in the cello. The movement ends quietly with a smile in the pizzicati and staccato. Track 16 is the third movement, Adagio, the slow movement. It's got a chorale intro with rolled chords on the piano. And I rather like the way the bass notes sustain on the piano, but don't sound as fully as they do on a modern piano. The melody, introduced by the cello, resembles a narrative rather than a song. The theme has a bit of drama and caution to it. There's a bit of a coda in the piano after the 3 minute 30 second mark, as the cello drones and plucks a single note, the piano leading to the final cadence. Track 17 is the fourth and final movement of this second cello sonata, Molto Allegro e Vivace. It's sunny, it has a light, frothy Mendelssohn quality to it, and I'm going to sample this from the 32nd mark, which is where the uh, main theme starts. There's an introduction before that. that the cello has a lot more to do in this piece than it did in the first yeah. <laughs> cello sonata. Also, notice all those that detail that Shamayu is getting in there with those those running sort of um, phrases in the, his kind of mid-range while he's accompanying. It's really magical. There's some exciting flight of the bumblebee type figuration from the cello in the fourth minute, and I want to sample that too because I thought this was pretty remarkable and I just wanted to point it out when it comes. Mendelssohn's fast movements have a fleetness and lightness of touch to them when played properly, as they are here. That gives him a unique voice. This remains energetic and sunny right to the end. It's an uplifting work, given an uplifting performance here. The use of period instruments serve the piece well, as they give more leeway to use a fast tempo. The final track on CD1 is track 18, Romance Sans Parole, or Songs Without Words, in D major, opus 109, from 1845. This is the only song without words uh, that Mendelssohn wrote for the cello. Okay, as with the piano songs without words, of which there are a lot, uh, there's a melody here played by the cello while the piano plays a repeating but distinctive line in its own right. The melody is sweet and attractive. Let's hear it. It's gorgeous.
And we go on. At a minute and 42 seconds, the piano speeds up the accompaniment and the cello's melody heats up. The B section ends at around the 2 minute and 45 second mark and the opening theme repeats to bring us to the end of this highly attractive work. This ends the Mendelssohn part of the program and if you're listening to this on CD, you're kind of lucky because the CD will end here and you'll have to get up and put the other CD in, which is what you want to do here because what, what's coming is very different than what we just heard <laughs> in this uh, CD. Now, if you're listening on uh, streaming or on an MP3, this is going to play straight through. I would just pause for a while and just kind of think about what you just heard and then go on from there. The contemporary composers on this album are all inspired by Mendelssohn's Songs Without Words and wrote a piece that was inspired by them and with contemporary instruments. First we hear Jörg Widmann. We heard an album with Sol Gabetta, I think two years ago now, called Sol and Pat with Patricia Kopachinskaya, and they played a Jörg Widmann piece on that album. This is called Lied ohne Wörter, which is a song without words, and this was written in 2022 by Vidman. Several meters, he says, are overlaid in this piece. He uses shorter, non-specific quotations. This piece has a lot of musical memories based on the rhythm of a barcarolle or Venetian boat song. Uh, the change of the piano sound is pretty jarring after the uh, period piano that we heard in the previous uh, works, but we're aware right away that we're in a different century by the cello's opening sighing glissando. After this, the cello plays a Mendelssohnian melody, with the piano playing a rather traditional accompaniment. This part sounds in the Mendelssohn tradition. At one minute, the piano starts playing in its high end, and we get a few plunking notes that remind us where in history we are. We often hear some off-key tones from the cello. I want to sample what's unusual about this song without words, so some of it's actually more pleasant, but let me just play this. I want to hear this just after the one-minute mark. It sounds like it's a little drunk there. <laughs> that was exactly what I wrote, a bit drunken. <laughs> yeah. uh, the melody comes back and we get a bit of a jarring ending. It's rather a 21st century wink at the 19th century. Tracks two through four, Heinz Holliger, born in 1939, Lieder ohne Wörter, or Songs Without Words. He wrote this in 2022 as well. Now these have all um, titles to them. Track two is movement one and it's labeled... Fern. Fern in G German means distant. And all three of these are brief atmospheric pieces. And this one starts with an open harmony, which the cello plays over with various effects, including harmonics. Yeah, that's the signature of the 20th century, really, if not the 21st. Let's hear the opening. Thank you. 
The uh, second uh, movement or second song without words is uh, labeled Sam. I'm not sure what that means in this case. But this comes in loud with the piano hammering on his arpeggiated material. I won't call it a chord. I'll just say like a tone cluster or something. And the cello plays with bowing techniques. Again, this is uh, going for tonal coloring more than identifiable melodic material. Though we do hear fragments of that. At the end, the piano's ending bass note is allowed to sustain until it fades, ending the movement. And then the uh, third movement, track four, is labeled Flamen Schnee, which means flames and snow. Starts with deep in the low end of the piano, where the figuration creates a rumble. The cello comes in with effects like sul ponticello playing on the bridge and fast tremolo playing, and later harmonics and odd double-stopped harmony. At a minute and 25 seconds, the material changes to something lighter. I'm guessing the snow section of the work in this case. The piano plays quietly and its subtle tones are held until they fade. The cello engages in quiet tremolo playing on single notes and harmonic single notes. The piano ends the work in the low end. Track five, a composer we just can't seem to get away from <laughs> as much as we try. <laughs> Francisco Cole, he's a Spanish um, composer. We just heard him a few weeks yeah. ago. Yeah. This is his dialogue without words. Dialogue una vorta. This composer's music gate crashes the adult music podcast often. <laughs> and here it is again. The sounds of this double portrait and dialogue form are repeatedly overlaid on one another to create an iridescent texture, reading from the booklet notes, drifting apart, then meeting again on the very same note. The exchange of ideas finally sinks down in both voices, its sonorities recalling the pulsating breath of an accordion. I, I think he's pretty clever. He writes these kind of brief pieces and they just make their way onto these like <laughs> albums of a variety of material. It's fairly brief at three minutes. The cello plays its melody heavily, really leaning into it with a bow, while the piano accompanies. This reaches a dynamic climax at about the one-minute mark. Then there's a slow decrescendo to the sudden end. Let's hear the opening of this work. get the idea. Tracks 6 and 7 are by the German composer Wolfgang Rimm, born in 1952. The first one, track 6 on the CD or track 24 if you're listening on streaming, Lied ohne Wort. This is um song without words from 2022. He says it's devoted to the word. The cello plays with a feathery tone as the piano supplies harmony on occasion. In fact, this piece is built on short phrases, often followed by pauses, like words that don't form into sentences. Rim keeps this movement quiet. Melodies do develop in the cello as it goes on. Track 7 is Verschwundene Worte, which means vanished words. It's devoted to song, and it recalls the touching simplicity of a lullaby and also has a quiet beginning. Yeah, this is one to sample. Let's try this. Thank you. 
It's very pretty in a 21st mm. century sort of way. The cello has a melody that's more straightforward than in the previous work. It's sweet, rather appealing, gently accompanied by the piano. The work has a slow-moving flow and arc to it that tapers off to the ending. The piece itself ends on a high harmonic taken by the solo cello. So I was very impressed by the partnership of Sol Gabetta and Bertrand Chamayou on this recording, particularly on the period instruments used in the Mendelssohn works. The sonatas feature impressive virtuosity, and the instruments, especially the Bluthner piano, allow for a fast, smooth attack from Chamayou that bring these works to life. Meanwhile, Gabetta has that Stradivarius made cello that comes across with a throaty low tone and smooth singing tone in the middle. The first disc is a deeply satisfying program by itself, and if you have a physical copy of this, it's on two CDs so you can listen to the entire Mendelssohn program without going directly into the Contemporary Composers program, which I recommend. But on streaming, those uh, Contemporary Composers uh, pieces start right up, and after all the Mendelssohn, they're a bit jarring, not least because the instruments we're hearing have changed as well. These are all very much works with ideas developed in the 20th century, in them, coloring the sound with harmonics and glissandos on the cello and using icy tone clusters on the piano. It's an entirely different kettle of fish and is presented here as a sort of a brief sort of um, coda or um, encore, I guess. They're all fine works, but you want to hear this for the Mendelssohn works and playing, and I'd highly recommend this album for the Mendelssohn program on CD1. The Mendelssohn performances were brilliant. Virtuosic playing, especially the piano. Yeah. <laughs> you got the feeling like he didn't want his brother to outshine him right. when they were playing them together. So I was really amazed at Shamayu's fleet playing on a lot of those works. Uh, but they also brought out the great cello melodies with wonderful musicianship. There's a lot of attention to details in dynamic contrasts and tone. And Gabetta's cello tone has warmth and lightness, depending on the passage, she's really able to switch up you know, what's needed for the expression at the moment. And they sound very much in sync with each other for many years of playing together, and I enjoyed that synergy. And as you said, the second CD pieces are somewhat interesting. <laughs> you may want that little break to reset yourself for the right context. Of all of them, I think I liked the Ream pieces. Yeah, me too. Because I found them really engaging in their sparseness. You know, they really kind of draw you in because there's a lot of space in there. And uh, the melody is actually kind of pretty in the final piece. Okay. And that's it for classical. We've had quite a bit of classical yeah. tonight, but uh, we had a lot to say. All right. Let's jump over onto the jazz side. We've got an interesting program with lots of intense music tonight. We're going to start out with some trombone. That's going to be from David Gibson with his release Fellowship. It came out January 15th on Imani Records. And this is a trombone quartet, which you don't hear very often. Gibson is an Oklahoma native who went to Eastman Conservatory of Music, and he spent time with trombonist arranger Slide Hampton after he arrived in New York in the mid-1990s. He has seven previous albums by two and three horn ensembles since 2002. Also three albums with Oren Evans's Captain Black Big Band and his work as a musical director for George G's Swing Orchestra. But this is his debut quartet album, which puts him front and center. You know, no other horn to share the lead with, which is a big deal as a brass player because you got to rest those chops. So trumpet or trombone usually is paired with a sax or another horn, but not here. And this is also Gibson's Imani Records debut, 
with owner and executive producer of that label, who is Oren Evans himself. So we've got David Gibson on trombone and all original compositions on this recording, Davis Whitfield on piano, Joseph Lepore on bass, and Kush Abaday on drums. This was recorded May 16th, 2022 at Samurai Hotel Recording Studio in Astoria, New York by David Stoller, masterings by David Darlington, and produced by Oren Evans. The opening track is called Disquietude, and that's a good title, and I was hooked right away when I sampled this tune, and that's how I decided to pick this album. We've got a seven-beat meter, and things get going with a cool bass ostinato for four measures. It's a menacing modal minor mood. Everyone joins in for another eight measures with some longer oscillating trombone notes and figures. Then there's an angular and rhythmic trombone melody for eight measures, and then some cool upward spiraling out trombone lines for four measures before the melody section again. Then we get a harmonic change in a six measure section with some tricky rhythmic figures synced up between bass and trombone too, before things return to the opening vamp feel for Gibson to get improvising. I just said a lot there, so let's uh, take a listen to all of that get going. Gibson is pretty harmonically adventurous in his solo, navigating the changes with interesting intervals and some really cool licks. So let's jump back in and hear some of that solo a little further on in the tune. From there, Whitfield has a go on piano, keeping the ominous rhythmic chords going with his left hand underneath, and they vamp for a bit for Abaday to get the drums worked up, and then they leave him on his own, and I really like his really sharp hits and crisp hi-hat sound. Gibson returns with another run through the melody sections to some final long high cries on the trombone. 
Track two is Beyond Breath, and it starts out with rubato rippling waves of piano bass pulses and cymbal washes. Gibson adds a rising line that sounds like a real primal cry, and suddenly things break into a loping swing. The trombone melody has little syncopated lines into longer notes with some sudden mode changes. It seems to be a 36-measure melody in total, the last eight bars featuring a switch up to a Latin feel. Gibson continues on soloing with snappy rhythmic figures in his melodic lines, but keeps it relaxed in feel, and he ends in a high gliss, and then Whitfield takes over. So let's hear that switch from the trombone to the piano solo on this tune. chords there before those truly figures. And Gibson is back with one more time through the melody into a high cry. They stick on the Latin groove to vamp for some trombone improvisations into some final rippling piano chords. Track three is called Meek's Wrath. There's a lot going on rhythmically in this tune, starting with a four measure intro of low piano chords and snappy bass figures. It's got a four against six feel to it. The tricky trombone melody gets some answers from the bass in piano left hand. It's divided up into eight and then six measure sections twice. Then there's a really syncopated three measure transition into a piano solo from Whitfield. Let's hear this one get going. Whitfield gets into a solo, playing a mix of interesting ideas, ringing chords, tremolos, and running lines. Gibson's back for the transition measures into his own solo. He connects lines of short rhythmic figures into a long arc of development. And Lepore follows with a bass solo, deep-toned but with precise articulation. He works it into a snappy ending to bring Gibson back with the melody line into some exciting cries and rhythmic improvisations ending with the transition section we heard before. 
Track four is Discursiveness. It's a fun swinging tune. The rhythm section stops up under the snappy trombone melody. It's in eight measure sections with an A-A-B-B pattern, and then a final four measures, which is like half of the A, and the B section is bluesier. Let's hear this one get going as well into Gibson's solo. some nice tricky bluesy licks mixed around more meandering harmonic explorations and nice syncing up with the rhythm section on figures on the way. Whitfield solos next with some ringing right hand high notes sprinkled in and then Lepore gets a bass solo too that has some real fun funkiness to it so let's hear some of that bass solo later on in the tune. Gibson will be back with the melody to take it out to a fun final wavering note. Track 5 is called Chief Distortion. It's an intense, super subdivided 3-beat Latin feel with a dangerous bass ostinato. After an 8-measure intro, Gibson comes in with a shriek over the next 8 measures, and the melody gets the trombone working down low over a 16-measure section. There are a few measures to a 4-beat walking bass, and then back to the busy pattern before that sequence repeats. The second time, it continues in a double-time 4-beat feel over walking bass for Gibson to improvise over. It's intense, so let's check out some of that action once we get into the tune. Thank you. 
Uh, Whitfield's next there with an equally intense piano solo really hammering out the chords, and Abaday is left on his own for some drum soloing, mixing things up around the kit, but with a lot of dynamic contrast. The original feel returns with one sixteen measure trombone section and the tag ending phrase that started the transition section. Track six is called Persist. It's time to slow things down a bit for this tune. A lighter Latin beat. Gibson takes the lyrical melody. It seems to be 21 measures around twice. Curiously, there's an extra beat in the sixth measure when you listen to it the first time. Following that, we hear the first trombone phrase again, leading into a bass solo from Lepore. He has some high-reaching lines and a free phrasing sense with nice melodic ideas. Gibson adds the first phrase again into a solo from Whitfield that has some very cool two-hand synced figures, and then Gibson's back for some more melody and improvised ideas to a slowed ending. Track 7, Waiting for Patience. It's a dreamy Latin beat tune with nice sunny major harmonies. The bass gets it going with repeated two-measure figures, and then the piano and drums join in for a round. Gibson comes in for 12 measures of repeated rhythmic notes and rising interval figures. Then there's a 16-measure trombone melody and a final four measures of the rising interval before Gibson is off improvising. Let's hear it get started. Gibson gets into his solo, he works in a quote from Fascinating Rhythm into his lines, and uh, I wouldn't have thought of that there, but he also shows off a lot of agility on this one. Whitfield starts off his piano solo with a neat two-handed triplet idea, and he shows off his varied articulation on this one, so let's skip ahead and hear a little bit of the piano solo here as well. Gibson's back with the melody after the piano solo into some more of the rising lines and rhythmic licks with some lines weaving in from Whitfield to the end. 
and the recording ends up with the title track Fellowship, and it's a ballad. It's interesting to end with this, after all of that exciting rhythmic and modal music we've heard, now we get to hear Gibson do one of my favorite things that the trombone does best, and that's create a real longing kind of mood. It's a slow melody made of a lot of half notes that the piano and bass hit together sparsely as it moves along. It's a 22 measure melody, and the final measures have some interesting bass and left hand piano figures. Let's hear it get going. Whitfield's going to have a soft ringing solo of spaced out notes on this one. And since it's the last track, let's hear Gibson when he returns for his trombone solo. it back into some of the half note melody ideas and tasty ideas to the end. I really enjoyed this recording. Gibson's original tunes are exciting with challenging harmonies, lots of interesting modal ideas and rhythmic variety. He shows that he's got great chops and endurance to be the only horn to handle all the melodies, often going right into extended solos. His improvised ideas are adventurous and creative, and Whitfield's solos on the piano are fresh and interesting as well. And Abaday and Lepore are rock solid and have distinctive touches when they shine through in their spots. It's a great recording of contemporary jazz and fine trombone playing. Yeah, fine trombone playing, right? The uh, trombonist is definitely the star on this record. And he's he's a pretty interesting soloist, too. Yeah. He's always surprising me with melodic and rhythmic twists and turns that he gets into. He has kind of a talking or chatting style of soloing. Um, mm. I feel like I'm hearing a, a discussion happening, and the title track, Discursiveness, makes me think that Gibson himself is aware of that. He's also got a distinctive tone, kind of with a space in the middle of it, like it's kind of a hollowed out 
kind mm. of sounds. It's pretty interesting. The bass solos in the album were also, I thought, attractive for their lively swinging and melodic, and again, discursive quality. You know, the drums soloed excitingly when in the spotlight, and I particularly liked the piano solo on track seven, Waiting for Patience, with mm. its interesting and quicksilver ideas. The piano sounded better toward the end of the album. I thought he was kind of like recessed at the beginning a little bit, and he came, I, well, maybe I just adjusted to it. I'm not really sure. This is an album that makes you uh, pay attention to detail and to the melodic twists, and yeah. so many are unexpected due to the modes being used. I thought this was a really interesting album. I'm going to have to listen to it again, I think. It's got this primal intensity in mm. the urgency of a lot of the tunes that really pulled me in right from the beginning. Primal's and, um, a good word, yeah, yeah maybe. I like that. Um, those mm. kind of shrieks he gets and right. over those rhythms with those modes. Yeah, I, I like the energy. Yeah, sometimes it's dark, but in a good way. Right. All right, moving on. The next recording is by trumpeter Jun Ida. It's called Evergreen. came out January 19th on OA2, Origin Arts label. Mm. And originally from St. Louis, Missouri, the son of Japanese immigrants, Ida was exposed to a lot of musical genres from a young age, and then he was brought up in Pittsburgh. In particular, he developed an interest and passion for jazz and improvised music, and he began performing actively in Los Angeles with his group, the June Ida Sextet, from 2015 to 2020. Then he relocated to Seattle. And then, so after five years in L.A. and three in Seattle, now he's moved on to New York. And this recording shows his development over the years. So we've got Junita on trumpet, Aubrey Johnson on vocals and vocalizations, which feature interestingly on this recording, Masami Kuroki on guitar, Josh Nelson on piano and Rhodes, Jonathan Richards on bass, and Xavier Le Couturier on drums. We're going to start out with an Ida original, Gooey butter cake, which I guess is a sweet treat that's popular in St. Louis. It's got a happy old time kind of feel, maybe a little New Orleans styled beat to it. And it gets started with a 16 measure intro by the rhythm section with some piano from Josh Nelson. The melody is a 16 measure affair as well. And Ida comes in for a time around it. He's got a very warm tone and soft articulation. They take it around again, this time up an octave with Aubrey Johnson joining in on unison vocalizations. We can hear all of that happen within a minute sample. So let's hear how it gets going. Nelson takes over from there with a piano solo with some playful detached phrases into smoother lines and Kuroki has a chance next with a nice round toned guitar and fluid lines. Then it's Ida's turn and he starts out blowing over just the walking bass. 
He's swinging along, and some of his bluesy licks are right out of the Roy Hargrove idea kit. <laughs> There's one lick that he likes a lot. We're going to hear it more than once on this recording. Let's check out some of his improvised ideas on this tune as well. lick that he likes mm-hmm. a lot there. Well, the Couturier gets eight measures of drums to bring back in the trumpet and vocal melody line once around into a slowed down ending of trumpet with a bluesy plagal cadence to end it. All right, let's uh, jump over to the exotic for American listeners, uh, Japanese side, not so exotic for us here with Akatombo. Yeah, it's heard very often here, in fact. This is by an interesting Japanese composer Kosako Yamada. The tune comes from 1927. The lyrics are from a 1921 poem by Rofu Miki, and the content is kind of a nostalgic depiction about a red Japanese dragonfly seen at sunset by uh, a child that's being carried on an older sister's shoulder. So what's interesting about this tune, this was uh, made at a time when Japanese composers were trying to make new children's songs that were somehow appealing both to a a Japanese musical sense and Western sentiments. And so this tune, the melody is built on a kind of pentatonic scale. They called a yonanuki. Here, I think it's yonanuki chounkai. Basically, it's a major scale, but without the fourth or seventh step. If you go over to the piano and play that to yourself, you get an idea. It kind of sounds like a Western normal scale with just those two notes removed. And it was used a lot around this time because it appeals to both sort of Japanese and Western musical senses. So they give this one a really interesting rhythmic setting, though. Nelson's piano starts it out with rising ringing chords and syncopated single notes. And Ida joins in on the rising phrases, then Johnson's voice building up to the lyrics, which she sings. She's an American jazz singer, but she sings in Japanese. The syncopated bass movement and drum fills underneath are pretty unique, so let's hear this tune get going. Thank you. 
Now, there's a section with vocalizations, trumpet lines, and guitar that transitions to a return of the lyrics. Ida gets an improvised solo with little half-valve tastes and some higher-reaching lines, and Nelson gets a vocalization solo soaring up to some really high notes. It simmers back down into another verse, and then some vocal and trumpet phrase exchanges and simultaneous improvisations to a slowed ending. Track 3 is the title track by Ida Evergreen. Richards gets it started with four measures of rhythmic bass and then piano and drums are in with an even clicky Latin beat. The melody has a Brazilian quality to it, taken in unison again by trumpet and Johnson's vocalizations. It's in an AABA form, but with a longer 12 measure B section with some unexpected chord diversions. Kuroki's up first for a guitar solo on this one, so let's hear some of his guitar playing on this tune. follows with a solo of rhythmic but fluffy toned licks. Nelson gets a little transition with some ringing piano into another time through the melody from trumpet and voice. The rhythm section continues on with Le Cotorier beating up a frenzy on the drums for a while until a few melody phrases on trumpet and voice reappear to finish it. All right, track four is called Shiki no Uta and this is by Jun Seba and the notes say M. Kuano, which I couldn't find out who <laughs> that person is. And interestingly enough, although uh, I've lived in Japan for half of my life, I've never been interested in animation in any way. I'm, mild, I'm mildly interested in certain right. ones, but not the, you know, not the way the Japanese are. <laughs> they're, they're oh, really why that's relevant that. is this is the ending theme for a Japanese anime called Samurai Champloo, which mm. aired from May 20th, 2004 until 2005. It was directed by Shinichiro Watanabe. So if there's any anime fans out there, I apologize for my ignorance. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know this one either. <laughs> this uh, animation was about a parallel Edo Japan in which Western elements had been infused into Japanese culture and way of life, such as hip-hop music. Well, that sounds kind of interesting. <laughs> Edo era Japan? Yeah. <laughs> and there's hip-hop music, man. It's making my head explode. <laughs> One of the uh, producers for the album, I guess, was um, Japanese DJ Nujabis, who really named Seba Jun, with the writing credits here. And uh, he co-produced the album that featured this track. And this was also based on uh, manga or comic of the same name. And the theme was sung by Japanese hip-hop and reggae singer Minmi, and was also on her 2004 album, Imagine. So that's where this song comes from. 
He just starts it out solo on his trumpet. Uh, then it sounds like he's made some harmonized backing with Harmon muted parts on additional tracks. And suddenly, a heavy solo drum beat brings in Johnson on the lyrics, and they make it funky with electric bass, Rhodes, and some uh, cool guitar fills as well. So uh, let's take a listen to it. for his solo on this one. Some more nice half-valve ideas with other ideas weaving through the chords before the vocals returns, and it ends with the funky drum beat. Track five is Bellarosa. This is a tune from Sonny Rollins and Elmo Hope. You can hear this on 1953 Clifford Brown's New Faces, New Sounds album with Lou Donaldson, if you can find that. Uh, that was Blue Note 503. Uh, uh, you can also find it on the 2001 reissue of the Clifford Brown Memorial album. So trumpet and voice are unison on the melody, coming in on the pickup. The guitar joins them too, and there are cool answering bass and left-hand piano lines. Jensen is getting up really high on the boppy melody lines. Kuroki solos first on guitar, followed by Ida, keeping it more boppy here, more like a Kenny Durham's kind of style of playing. And Nelson gets a piano solo too, before they get back to the melody once more to wrap it up. Track 6 is an Ida original, Forgotten Memories. This one has an airy atmosphere, starting with solo piano joined by voice, drums and bass come in, and then more layers with guitar and trumpet, which then join the voice. Well, this is our second 7-8 meter tune of the episode. We had one last week too. Wow. We remember there was a month when we had one in every episode, so hmm. we're getting them again. Uh, it works up to a pause, and then Ida takes the center for some lines before being joined by guitar and voice, working up to a pause again. And Nelson gets a solo here, so let's hear some of his running piano lines on this tune.
We hear Johnson coming in there for some vocal backing, and Ida's going to follow with a trumpet solo, and Lecouturier is mixing up the drums underneath. He gets backing, working into the trumpet interlude and melody and pauses that were heard earlier. Then there are some new softer rhythmic trumpet and guitar phrases into some more piano improvisations from Nelson that the tune fades out over. Track seven is the love theme from Spartacus, written by Alex North and Terry Callier. Uh, this has been recorded a lot. Uh, Youssef Latif, Ramsey Lewis, and Bill Evans actually recorded it as well. Here it's a trumpet and piano duet. It sounds like piano and Rhodes together, getting a kind of thicker tone. This gets a rubato solo keyboard piano opening until Ida comes in with the rich toned melody. It's very nice ballad playing and solo as well, keeping it all very lyrical. Track eight, back to an Ida original, My Anguish in Solidarity. The drums kick into a 16-measure syncopated wall of sound melody with trumpet, voice, and guitar. There's a measure of pause into a lighter section. It sounds like guitar with a unique tone effect that then gets joined on those lines by Johnson's voice. Nelson gets an energetic piano solo that ends up in some synced lines with guitar into some rhythmic chords and furious drum fills before coming down quietly for a bass solo from Richards. We haven't heard anything from him yet, so let's check out some bass on this tune. Guitar and voice rhythmic lines get joined by trumpet, repeating and building up to a funky, affected guitar solo from Kuroki, exchanging lines with Ida. Then it returns to the guitar and voice section we heard after the opening, and the following section with some vamping for drums to get a workout in. It builds up to the end with the synced up guitar and piano rhythmic figures and trumpet and vocal stacking on top of it. Track 9, another Ida original song for Luke. It's a slow ballad. In an A-A-B-A form, Ida takes the melody, there's a little pause before the A repeat that's tasty, and Johnson takes over on the B section with vocalizations, staying on for the final A section with Ida. Let's hear a little bit of it from where she comes in.
Richards gets a bass solo that rings out with rising lines, and Kuroke has some atmospheric kind of tremolo guitar underneath as Ida gets his own solo with lifting ideas and energy on the B section. It softens for a return to the melody, this time Johnson joining from the A section repeat, but leaving Ida alone at the end to finish the final section. The recording ends up with a final Ida original holding on to Autumn. This one is airy too and has one of those kind of cruising grooves to it. There's an eight measure intro with relaxed riffs from Kuroki. The melody evolves over 40 measures with Ida taking the first section. That repeats, getting some answering lines from guitar and voice. The next section has rhythmic repeating vocal lines. Then there's another new section idea taken by voice and guitar and then repeated by trumpet while the guitar and voice get new lines. Ida's up for his final solo on the recording, so let's hear what he plays on this tune. Nelson follows with a piano solo, showing off a delicate touch and nice staccato figures into running lines, and Ida returns to lead everyone back through the melody sections again. Nelson gets a soft rubato piano outro with dancing cymbals to finish it. It's a unique debut recording in a lot of ways. Ida's original tunes sound fresh and the arrangements keep you guessing. The instrumentation using vocalizations from Johnson as an instrument and sharing the melody is an interesting choice. And then we get the Japanese Akatombo and the animation tune Shikino Uta, one cover of a jazz great original. It's quite a mix. Ida's playing is lyrical with a soft attack. He has interesting solos. I like his style. Overall, it's a distinctive approach already in his playing, and Johnson's vocals are neat to hear in Japanese as she soars high with vocalizations too. Impressive solos from Nelson and the rest of the rhythm section are tight and energetic. It'll be interesting to see what Ida comes up with next. Yeah, I thought so too. I, I thought a lot of those um, same things, actually. It's a really pleasant album and very appealing like right away. Yeah, it has pop sentimentalities to it too. Yeah, and I think that's a lot because of the, the vocalises, and I really enjoyed hearing those again, because mm. we don't hear enough of that these days in uh, in jazz. Like I remember right. like uh, George Benson used to do them while he was playing the guitar mm -hmm. back in the right. 70s and 80s. So we hear a bit of, you know, well, not the same quite thing, but uh, Orbe Johnson's voice is really pleasant, you know, in those vocalises. I really enjoyed listening to that. Ida, I liked his like soft, breathy attack. Mm-hmm on the trumpet even during aggressive figuration he has this kind of cushioned attack to it it never comes in like really hot but i so i really liked it it kind of yeah chilled me out a bit i kind of liked it and i like the way the uh the two japanese songs kind of fit into the jazz idiom i was really impressed by that you know they interesting kinda, arrangements yeah yeah they were really interesting he found a way to make them really appealing like that 
they were already appealing songs. I don't know. I think I called this like a light jazz idiom. I don't want to go too far with that. But uh, it's fairly laid back for the most part, and it's good for an evening listen. And uh, I really like this. Yeah. Interesting. Hmm. Like I said, I had no idea what kind of uh, section was coming next in a lot of yeah. the arrangements. So it kept me surprised and interested. Right. All right, the final recording. We'll go back to some classic jazz sounds and heroes from the 60s and beyond with Gerald Cannon, bassists, live at Dizzy's Club, the music of Elvin and McCoy on Woodneck Records. I believe that's his own record label. This came out January 19th. So jazz bassist, composer, and also visual artist Gerald Cannon has performed with great musicians such as Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers, Roy Hargrove, Winton and Branford Marsalis, and the two giants that this recording is dedicated to, drummer Elvin Jones, who Cannon played with for 14 years, and pianist McCoy Tyner, who he played with for nine years. Cannon's currently on the faculty of Juilliard School in Manhattan, also Oberlin College and Conservatory, as associate professor of jazz bass. And this was recorded at the Jazz at Lincoln Center venue, Dizzy's Club. And we've got an all-star cast on here. Gerald Cannon on bass, Joe Lovano on tenor sax, Sherman Irby on alto saxophone, Eddie Henderson on trumpet, Steve Ture on trombone, Dave Kikoski on piano, and Lenny White on drums. Recording is going to get started with EJ's Blues. EJ for Elvin Jones. It's one of his tunes. You can find this, I believe, the earliest recording, 1978, Elvin Jones Jazz Machine, live in Japan. We've got the full band here on this minor bluesy tune. It's not a 12-bar blues, but a 16-measure melody, and all the horns are belting it out with syncopated accents and fills from Lenny White. So let's hear it get going. That is the full-throated sound of Joe Lovano's tenor sax, soloing first, and he plays with a lot of gusto. Kikuski is pounding out some cool chords underneath. Henderson gets a go on trumpet next, working in some trills and making a nice arc to his solo. And then Steve Ture follows, and the interaction with Kikuski on his trombone solo is very cool. So let's check him out on this tune.
know if every solo was exactly one minute like that, we could play the whole solo for our clips all the time. Well, Irby's up on alto sax next, starting with some fluttery ideas and keeping the intensity going. And Kikoski gets a solo too, getting a lot of harmonic and rhythmic tension that White really accents nicely while Cannon keeps the steady chug driving forward. Twice more around the melody by everyone and some final horn shrieks finish it up to the crowd's approval. Track two is called The Three Elders. This is a Canon original, and it appears on his 2004 self-titled album. Now, curiously, on Deezer, where we stream, this tune has an explicit <laughs> rating uh, next to it. And I don't know why it would have that. I actually wrote to them and said you should remove that. Although, there is an explicit moment later in the program, <laughs> which I'll uh, <laughs> bring up when we get to it. Well, Swirling Cymbals and Henderson's Harmon Muted Trumpet start this one out with some sparse drum tom textures. Cannon drops the bass note to bring it into tempo as Henderson carries the melody along, getting passed off to Levano for a section. It's pretty and contemplative, and Henderson keeps the mood with lots of space in his lines when it comes back to him for improvisations. Levano gets a solo too with lyrical and tender lines. It pauses and slows to the end over some bowed bass from Cannon. It's a very touching ballad. Track three. Three Card Molly, this is an Elvin Jones tune from his 1971 recording Genesis. This tune is a minor, modal, very hard bop type tune. It's an AABA form with only four measures on the B section that sound agitated and ominous with the horns all working it. Levano emerges first with the solo, working up to some double time phrases and angsty toned high notes. And Henderson is next, and let's check out his trumpet solo on this tune. goes on and on and i like his relaxed phrasing and false fingering ideas in this solo kikoski's up next with ringing chords and cool running ideas and cannon gets to take a nice bass solo on this tune so let's skip ahead and hear the leader and what he has to say
Uh, there we go back to the melody, and we'll go once around there to wrap up the tune. Track four is Search for Peace. Now we're on to McCoy Tyner's tunes. This is from 1967's The Real McCoy. This is a really lovely ballad, a 32-measure AABA construction. Lovano takes the A sections, and Henderson blows a delicate B section, with Lovano staying underneath for some backing ideas, and Henderson solos first. I like how he still takes a lot of chances in his solos, getting into some tight harmonic spots, but always landing on his feet. And let's hear Lovano's solo on this tune. there and he ties it back into the melody to a big pause and a short not quite cadenza and uh, a little mysterious ending track five blues in the minor another mccoy tyner tune this is from 1980s mccoy tyner quartets four by four cannon gets this going with some cool bass lines into four measures of drums before the horns come in with the 32 measure a b a b melody let's hear it get going He's going to get to solo first on this tune with some dazzling triplet ideas in his lines. Lovano gets a solo too, really building it up with some hot phrases. But let's hear some of Irby's alto solo on this tune since he set out on a couple of the previous tunes. Thank you. 
Well, White gets a drum solo next and builds it up from some sparse ideas. And if you listen closely, you'll hear someone call out an expletive during that drum solo. And I won't repeat it here because we are a clean-rated podcast. I wonder if that was because he was like amazed at something he heard or if somebody spilled a drink in his lap. <laughs> it sounds like it's coming from the bandstand, so oh, okay. <laughs> it might be yeah, something impressive happened there. Anyway, everyone is back in for another run through the melody to finish it up. Track six is Home. This is from McCoy Tyner, 1991 New York Reunion album. This is a very cool tune with a unique construction. Lovano and Henderson sit out on this one. There's a four-measure intro with bass interval ideas. Then the main horn melody is an AABA construction with 11-measure A sections. And the B section has two parts, a four-measure piano interlude and then 16 measures of horn lines. And check out the switch-ups from even beat to swing and Kikoski's great piano underneath. Uh, we've got to hear this one get going. Torrey solos first on trombone, and then Irby on some searing-toned alto, and let's hear some Dave Kikoski on this one when he gets soloing. to the melody from there with some final soft vamping and solo sax and trombone. What a great tune. Track 7, Contemporary Focus. This is McCoy Tyner's tune from his 1963 Today and Tomorrow album. Back to a full band for this one. It's got super dense harmonies and probably the most intricate arrangement of the horns on the recording. It all starts out with some cool double-stopped bass lines from Canon. Let's hear the tune into Lovano getting started on his solo. Thank you. 
This is the longest tune on the recording at more than 13 and a half minutes, and all the soloists get to open up and do their thing. Today follows Lovano and then Irby, who brings things down really soft at the end to transition to Henderson, who's left over just Cannon's bass with a few interjections from White before he and Kakoski join back in. The other horns add in some staccato syncopated backing lines. Kakoski gets a solo with some cool percussive chord ideas. The horns return to cheer him on. And then Cannon gets the final solo, working in some of the double stop ideas we heard in the intro before the horns are back with the dense melody and final horn ideas. It's an impressive performance from all. And the recording ends up with McCoy Tyner's Inception, the title track from his 1962 release. And this is a final tune just by Trio. So just the rhythm section here. And I think you can say that McCoy Tyner is one of Kikoski's biggest influences, and it's always great to hear him play a Tyner tune, this being one of the, his most famous. It's a real feature for Dave Kikoski. I'd like to play the whole thing, but we'll have to settle just for uh, somewhere in the middle of the solo to hear what he plays on this tune. It's really exciting. stop that <laughs> well he works into some trading with white's drums before getting one more go through the melody for an exhilarating end to a great album cannon has made a great tribute to elvin jones and mccoy tyner two jazz giants that he played with for years i think this captures the essence of their music in a fresh way with some of the best players out there today cannon's bass is a solid foundation with interesting solos Locking in with White's precise and explosive drumming, all the horns sound inspired here on their solos, particularly Henderson and Lovano, and you can feel how much Kikoski loves this music, and his backing and solos are brilliant. This one will really make you wish you were there at these live performances to feel the magic in the air that was captured on this recording. Yeah, in fact, when I was listening to this, I said, man, this is really happening. <laughs> I thought it was really happening in front of me there. It's a great recording, too, for a live recording, especially... Yeah. And all instruments are well mic'd and heard close up, which is I yeah. thought was really great in this case because there's a lot of fantastic detail in these arrangements and uh, solos that I really wanted to pick up. It's got a lot of soloing on it, just like yeah. the old days when jazz had tracks that were ten plus minutes long. This is, yeah, some tracks go over that and some approach it. It's really uh, I, I really like that when you get to hear the. Uh, the soloists stretch out like that. Yeah. I didn't even notice that this was, it's 72 minutes, like you said, but it, I didn't even notice really. Um, it was just exciting all the way through. Mm -hmm. Kikoski's playing. We love him. He's, yeah. <laughs> he was, it was well mic'd. I wish he were a little more forward in the mix, but that's okay. He was still very, you heard on the last track, he sounded yeah. great. Although, again, to me, it seems like he's moving further forwards on the last three tracks, but I'm wondering if that's just my ear adjusting. 
to the recording. I don't know. Anyway, I like the impact the sound made on me as well as the actual soloing from the entire ensemble. And most of the tracks are explosive and swing hard, though there are a few ballads toward the beginning, like tracks two and four. And this sounds like it was an excellent night out, like you said. Yeah. And it feels really good on record. You said there was a photo of one of them holding the CD, and I didn't see any CDs online. <laughs> I definitely want to get this one on a CD. So if, yeah, I know. if there's any way to get that, yeah. I saw uh, I Dave Kukowski has a a copy of it in his hand and he's talking about it. So maybe some of them will get out there. Gerald, if you hear this, we'd really like to get copies of this on CD. So let us know how we can get a hold of it. Yeah. All right. Well, that wraps up episode 150. And well, as always, thanks to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo. Don't forget to check out the same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard podcast. And, well, we've got next week already mapped out. I think it's going to be piano on the classical side. Yeah, all solo piano, yeah. All solo piano. solo piano, yeah. You want to tell us uh, what you've got lined up for us? What do we got? We got one big heavy hitter, Piotr Andrzejewski, who mm-hmm. rarely records. So it's always kind of a, an event when he puts something out. So his new album. We've got some American music by Andrew Armstrong, who usually accompanies um, James Ennis, or at least that's how I know him. But, you know, he's a mm-hmm. fine pianist in his own right. And what was the uh, what was the other one? I don't remember now. Oh, it was um, it was it was called La Danse. It's about um, dance music for piano. Now we've had something like this before, mm-hmm. but uh, this is a, a a different recording by a different pianist. The pianist in question here is Martin James Bartlett, who is an English okay. pianist. So I got uh, three piano recordings with some different approaches on them. Oh, cool. On the jazz side, we've got all drum led recordings. We've got the new one from Ulysses Owens Jr. And we've got a new recording from drumming great Joe LaBarbera, World Travelers. And we've got some Bill Cunliffe on piano on there, a penis we always like to hear. And we're going to have the new one. It's coming out on February 2nd from a drummer we really like, Gaz Hughes, over in the UK. We've had this recording for a while. He got it to us ahead of time. And I wanted to get some notes on it. And he shot us an email uh, during the podcast. I just noticed he follows us. He says he really enjoys listening to the podcast. And I'll have all the rest of the credits and background stories on the tunes. So looking forward to hearing that and sharing that with everyone because he's uh, working hard in the UK and Europe. And we want to get him some more international listeners for his exciting drumming. Right. Let's do that. Yeah, so looking forward to that next week. All of those recordings will be on our playlist, which will be up on Deezer a couple hours after this episode gets published. So if you want to check out the recordings early, you can go over to Deezer. There'll also be a link to it on our Facebook page. So exciting week of music coming up for episode 151. We look forward to that. And so until then, keep listening, and we'll see you again next week. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you. 